Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. I want to thank the people who support the Peter B. Collins Show, including Bruce, Patrick, Enbody, Susan Fellows, Tom McAfee, and Eileen Weber. They're all monthly subscribers. Voluntary, of course, to this program. You can sign up, too, for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just click on You Can Help at PeterBCollins.com. Later in this podcast, we'll get an update from Alabama. Former Governor Don Siegelman still fighting for justice after Carl Rove's buddies railroaded him into federal prison. Ah, the story includes a stolen election. A judge who should have recused himself. A dirty prosecutor or two. And a motorcycle deal that I've still never gotten to the bottom of. That's coming up later on. But first, Brad Friedman returns, the citizen journalist, chief cook and bottle washer at bradblog.com. And Brad has been extremely busy. We've got a lot to catch up on. But first of all, my congratulations to you on the Buzz Flash Wings of Justice Award, Brad. Thank you, sir. It's a great, uh, a, a great honor, uh, auspicious list of uh, previous award winners. I don't deserve to be on it, but I'll take it, and I'm uh, delighted, honored, and moved. Well, if I can just push you a little bit here, brother, uh, you know, this is not like Obama and the Nobel Prize, okay? Uh, I, well, that's true. I think you do deserve it. Well, okay, then I'll take it. <laughs> now, well, of course, you know, the list uh, includes Barack Obama, Walter Cronkite, so, you know, these are, and some great whistleblowers, some great uh, journalists. Uh, so I am delighted uh, to be amongst that uh, honorable list. Well, and uh, one award that you should have gotten, or at least notice, was for the incredible job that you did getting the New York Times to partially correct the record. And this, as we've blogged and podcast about previously, revolves around the demise of Acorn. We all ought to have a moment of silence because right-wing provocateurs did succeed in bringing down ACORN, and uh, I consider that to be a a modern-day tragedy. But the New York Times did partly correct uh, its misreporting, and in particular, Clark Hoyt, the public editor, conceded that he was wrong, that the Times was wrong in the way they covered it, and then they've continued to misreport certain elements of this despite that acknowledgement. And what really burned me is that in the public editor's column uh, a week ago Sunday, he couldn't bring himself to name Brad Friedman as the guy who really drove this. He mentioned FAIR. That's, that's a good group, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. 
Uh, I didn't see him mention Media Matters, and they were on this case as well. But if anybody was driving the bus, it was you, Brad. Well, I, I thank you. And, uh, yeah, it does seem somewhat petty that uh, Clark Hoyt uh, couldn't find it in himself to uh, recognize the fact that uh, it was, in fact, me who was, you know, pushing him to uh, do the right thing here. Uh, there, there was, if you, if you were careful, if you read it online, there was a small link to the Pratt blog. Oh, yeah? So, there, so that was his uh, hat tip toward uh, the work that we did to uh, correct the record, at least on one limited point that they begrudgingly uh, brought forward and admitted to finally after two months of my haranguing them, six months after uh, they had you know, first misreported the story, and something like four months after uh, the former Massachusetts Attorney General Scott Harshbarger had come out with a report detailing exactly what the New York Times had gotten wrong, but they completely re- ignored that report, never mentioned Scott Harshbarger's name, until last weekend, when they finally uh, admitted to the uh, small error, as they uh, seem to uh, describe it, uh, concerning the way that James O'Keefe was uh, was dressed uh, as a pimp or not as a pimp, as mm-hmm. the case actually uh, turns out to be. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, and, and they seem to feel that you were um, overreacting or um, taking what they consider to be a petty detail and blowing it out of proportion. That was the clear message or subtext that I picked up. But this was not a trivial matter. And uh, as you pointed out in your detailed coverage or uncoverage of the Times of Failings, uh, they continued to repeat the claims of James O'Keefe and Andy Breitbart as amplified by the Fox News Channel. And it was spinning further and further away from the real facts. And that's what a, a newspaper like the Times really should be priding itself on, is that they get every detail right. And as I, I've pointed out to you in, in you know supporting your demand for a correction, uh, I'm a subscriber to the Times. I, I read it uh, four or five days a week. I, I got the partial week subscription now. Uh, but every day on page two, they run corrections. And they run corrections of sports scores or a, a player's number that was wrong, uh, you know, a misstatement in a recipe that it's half a cup of flour, you know, not two thirds. <laughs> and, and so for them to be willing to police their publication for minutiae as well as important things that should be corrected, um, what you uh, exposed is not minutiae. It's critical to the framing of this story and the hoax that O'Keefe and his colleagues uh, perpetrated through this highly edited and manipulative video. Yeah, I think it is. It was key, of course, you know, that the broadcast media had this tremendous video of this, uh, you know, skinny little white kid parading around in a chinchilla fur coat and, you know, being able to say, you know, how stupid were these acorn workers that they couldn't tell that this guy was putting them on? Uh, you know, they must be idiots. Can you believe we're giving them our federal dollars? And so, yeah, that was all part of it. It was very key to the entire hoax. And I uh, would suggest that, you know, had anyone not on the right pulled off such a hoax uh, and included, a, you know, a scheme such as that, it would have, first of all, it would have never made the, the newspaper at all. It certainly would have been considered not fit to print. 
but they would have excoriated uh, someone for having done that, and they certainly would not have continued to rely on that person for the misinformation that they continue to report. New York Times is still standing by the uh, notion that O'Keefe quote, posed as a pimp in these acorn offices when he did no such thing. He posed as the boyfriend to this uh, uh, fake prostitute, Hannah Giles, saying that they were trying to save her. Now, wait, 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 wait a minute. You just said something that I don't think you have any proof of. What's that, that she's a fake prostitute? Yeah. (laughs) No comment here. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. So that's what he, you know, he he was always the boyfriend of this uh, girl. They were trying to save her from the uh, an abusive pimp who was trying to stalk her and kill her. Uh, the the workers, what they did, what O'Keefe and Giles did, was basically prey on the good natures of uh, these Acorn workers, because you know they had really framed this thing as a situation that they needed to get her out. That he was this bad pimp. Not O'Keefe, but this other guy was trying to kill her. They took advantage of them uh, in that regard, and then they took whatever words they said, put it out there, reordered it uh, to make it look as if uh, O'Keefe was, quote, posing as a pimp. The New York Times is still buying that line. They're still reporting it that way. And the only thing they have to go on are the words of James O'Keefe himself and his video, yeah. you know, including his uh, text tra- transcripts, which are also unauthenticated and can say any damn thing that James O'Keefe wants them to say. So we know that James O'Keefe is a liar. The New York Times has even now acknowledged that he lied to them, essentially, and yet they're still believing his story, <clears throat> you know, rather than asking the tough questions. It's I mean, it's remarkable. They haven't learned anything. Plus, they also haven't apologized for the unbelievable damage that they have done to this four-decade-old organization, anti-poverty organization, and their 400,000 member families in 75 different cities. Uh, You know, these videos knocked them out of business. Not just these videos, but these videos and the mainstream media coverage yeah. of these videos or miscoverage, uh, you know, really did the trick. And there has been no apology forthcoming from the New York Times. I mean, you know, as a matter of fact, this morning in the New York Times, there is one of the most bizarre correction apologies, an actual apology from the New York Times that I have ever seen, where they apologize, I believe it's to the government of Singapore. It's very difficult to understand. Uh, I intend to cover it on bradblog.com if I can uh, later tonight. But uh, for implying that there was some form of nepotism uh, in the Singapore government, it's very difficult to understand. I'm trying to make Mm -hmm. sense of it. But what was clear is that uh, the New York Times, which owns the International Herald Tribune, uh, was... In, you know, in, da- in danger of not being able to sell their newspaper in Singapore. Yeah. So that earned an apology from the New York Times to the uh, emperor of Singapore, whoever the hell it is. But in this case, no apology necessary, and we will continue to misreport the story, even though we admit we got part of it wrong. It, it's just extraordinary. So this, this saga continues and will continue. And uh, just on the bare facts, I haven't read the articles you're referring to, but 
I believe the current uh, prime minister or premier of Singapore is the son of Lee Kuan Yew, who was the longtime strongman who ran Singapore. And so just on the face of it, you know, nepotism seems to be a word that would fit um, the transfer of power there. Yeah, I mean, it seems clear that they, you know, they actually, they did not correct. I don't think they said they got anything wrong. I think they just said, we apologize for having said this or that. So Mm -hmm. that earned an apology, uh, but not the fact that here in our own country, you know, hundreds of and thousands of uh, folks, uh, low income, you know, the, the folks who need help services more than anyone in this country, that those people are just frankly shit out of luck at this point. No no apology necessary. And, Brad, I just imagine, regardless of what, uh, you know, somebody posing as an undercover reporter would wear, if you went into Charles Schwab, if you went into uh, the, you know, uh, banks of the rich, where they have these special wealth management groups for the Mm ultra-wealthy, you could entrap somebody there into giving you advice on how to uh, evade taxes, legally or otherwise, uh, with large sums of money. And so these people went in posing and, and looking for nickel and dime, uh, you know, housing deals, how to report income on their taxes so that they could qualify either for loans or for, uh, uh, you know, housing, uh, subsidized housing uh, opportunities. And, and so it, it is amazing that this kind of is an extension of Ronald Reagan's uh, meme of the welfare queen, and that, uh, you know, there are all these people at the bottom who are scamming like mad when the real scams occur at the very top with people who have uh, manicured nails and the finest suits available. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and those people who have been found, who have been found actually guilty of serious misconduct with government funds to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars, you know, we're talking about Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, uh, uh, Halliburton, uh, the list goes on and on. Those people continue to enjoy their uh, government contracts, to enjoy billions of dollars in government contracts, despite having pled guilty in many cases uh, to defrauding the government of billions. It's easy to set someone up if you're out to get them, and that is clearly what happened here. And the New York Times, of all people, should, of all media outlets, should know better, should have known going into the story that, look, there has been this years-long right-wing assault on this group, ACORN. They should have been dubious about any such uh, information that came out, and they simply weren't. They simply passed on this information to the public without bothering to check it out, and then when they got caught, they tried to cover it up. And that's exactly what, if you remember the original emails from uh, senior editor for Standards, Greg Brock, you know, he tried to cover this up. First explain that the reason we reported it is because uh, James O'Keefe said he was wearing the pimp outfit and, quote, we believe him. And then he gave me a, you know, a song and dances, all kinds of BS about uh, videotapes that showed what he was really, you know, showed that he was wearing this pimp outfit, interviews with employees of Acorn that said that he was wearing this outfit. Uh, it was all bullshit, and I called him out on it every step of the way. And yet, even then, it took a full two months for this partial correction, no apology, and. You know, I'll give you an idea. Clark Hoyt's column last week, 
there was uh, a point that uh, a paragraph that he, he wrote that I didn't really get to, to point out to readers when I uh, initially flagged the column. But I think it really tells the story here. It's two sentences. Let me read this to you. He says, uh, near the end of this column, after he has already said, I was wrong, uh, the Times was wrong, and I was wrong to have defended the phrasing, he comes uh, in his conclusion, he says, <clears throat> quote, to conservatives, ACORN is virtually a criminal organization that was guilty of extensive voter registration fraud in 2008. To its supporters, ACORN is a community service organization that has helped millions of disadvantaged Americans by organizing to confront powerful institutions like banks and developers. Now, only one of those two sentences is true, Peter. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't, Hoyt doesn't bother to point that out. It's just, oh, it's a he said, she said, look how fair and balanced we are. One of those sentences is absolutely true. The fact is, ACORN is an important community service organization, has helped millions of uh, disadvantaged Americans, and have uh, you know, organized to confront powerful institutions like banks and developers for years. The other stuff uh, about uh, you know, being a criminal organization guilty of voter registration fraud is complete and utter bullshit. Yes. And it doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's fair and balanced. You say it's sunny out. I say it's rainy out. Never mind that we can all go look out the window and see that it's sunny. It's just too gray for us, the paper of record, to be able to uh, to work out for you. Well, and as you and I have discussed on many occasions, uh, ACORN was used as a smokescreen to cover serious election fraud conducted by the insiders who controlled the process or who were involved in uh, the campaigns that quote-unquote won. And we're going to give people an example from Kentucky uh, before we wrap up here today. Uh, and, And there are other examples that we know about, most famously David Iglesias, the U.S. attorney from New Mexico, who refused to bring charges of voter fraud because they couldn't be substantiated. And he lost his job under pressure from a powerful U.S. senator and a powerful former congresswoman um, who brought to bear the the Karl Rove White House to uh, try to discipline this guy because he wouldn't play ball in time for the 2006 elections. And the Times just not only glosses over it, refuses to... Uh, properly report that uh, ACORN was, in fact, used in this manner. And uh, it's part of the reason they were able to bring it down, because they established this unproven lie uh, over time, and Clark Hoyt swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Well, that's right. And, you know, the New York Times has not been horrible when it comes to reporting on the U.S. attorney scandal. Uh, Ian Urbina did a, a terrific article uh, some years ago on just the, you know, the lack of actual voter fraud that occurs, even as found by Bush's own uh, Department of Justice. You know, that there was very few, uh, you know, criminal uh, convictions for voter fraud across the entire nation. A lot of them were uh, really just setups. And, you know, so they should know better. And Ian Urbina should know better. And yet he is one of the folks who's come out and reported that, uh, well, what is clear is that uh, James O'Keefe has posed as a pimp. Uncritically, unskeptically, you know, without bothering to ask any, uh, any questions about what really went on. And, uh, you know, last time I was on with you, I think uh, we had given the email addresses uh, for Clark Hoyd and mm-hmm. Greg Brock, 
So we don't need to give those again, because obviously those two guys are done and feel like they've washed their hands of this. Um, But I'd love to bump it up a little bit and encourage folks to contact Bill Keller, Mm -hmm. the executive editor of the uh, New York Times, because this story ain't done not by a long shot, uh, at least not as far as I'm concerned. There still needs to be accountability here, never mind the apology that needs to be there, but there needs to be accountability for really the cover-up that I mentioned uh, by Hoyt and by Brock. Uh, You can reach Bill Keller, the executive editor, at executive-editor at nytimes.com, executive-editor at Mm -hmm. nytimes.com, and the managing editor, uh, Jeff Geddes, at managing-editor at nytimes.com. You know, I had the occasion over the weekend uh, to give the uh, keynote address at a uh, media conference down here in Los Angeles sponsored by California Common Cause. And one of the points I tried to make was that, you know, at this point, we expect, we know the bad guys are going to be bad guys. We have long uh, hoped, uh, counted on the, uh, the media, our mainstream media, to protect us from those bad guys, to be skeptical of them, to not let them get away with their hoaxes and their evil doing. Well, those days are apparently over as well. At this point, if this sort of thing continues, I'm going to blame no one but, Peter, your listeners for not taking action <laughs> okay. and doing something about it. Because, you know, I, I, as, I'm, as I've been watching this, as I've been working on this story and so many others in the past, I have seen other progressives, so-called progressives, so-called liberals, uh, Democrats, stand back, presume somebody else is going to take action on this stuff, uh, you know, and not cover these issues, not cover election integrity issues, presume that, oh, someone is going to take care of it. Here's the newsflash. Nobody is going to take care of it other than you. And I'm talking to you, the listener. And the reason that the right wing gets their corrections and apologies from these uh, media outfits is because when they are aggrieved, they show up in numbers and they don't stop raising hell and making noise until, uh, you know, they get what they're after, an apology, a correction, whatever it is. The progressives don't do that, I'm sorry to say, not in the same kind of way. And they need to start doing it because if they don't, we're going to see one story after another after another exactly like this, and this will never change. Yeah. You know, how many, as I've said, how many Clinton impeachments, how many elections 2000 and 2004, you know, how many, uh, uh, you know, Dan Rather uh, hatchet jobs where they, you know, destroyed mm-hmm. him for getting the story right, how many Iraq WMD stories, how many Van Joneses are going to be run out of the administration, how many acorns are going to be put out of business. Well, they're going to continue year after year until we, the people, finally stand up and say enough is enough. We demand accountability from you, New York Times, Washington Post, AP, CNN, all the rest. It really is up to your listeners to save this world, Peter. Okay, that's a heavy responsibility. Now, I missed the name of the managing editor. Can you repeat that? Geddes. John Geddes. John, okay, G-E-T-T-I-S? G-E-D-D. Yes. Mm-hmm. Geddes. Okay. Yeah, Great. and uh, his and I'll, e- I'll put these emails up uh, on you. on the show file with a hot link so that people can click right on it Thank and you, grab those. 
Now, uh, I just want to follow up on one thing you mentioned there. I have been negotiating by telephone with Van Jones uh, for an interview, and I, I spoke to him last week, and he put me off again for another couple of weeks. He's going to take a little vacation, and then he is uh, going to resume a post at the Center for American Progress. Mm. But it's a little bizarre because uh, I, I've known Van since before he got big and went to the White House. Not well, but we, we talked uh, at least three or four times, and I met him at some uh, criminal justice functions in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And he is trying to, uh, he, he's willing to do an interview, but he wants to look forward, not backward. And when I said, yeah, but my listeners would like to know your side of the story of why you left the White House. And he said, Peter, I can't think of anything more boring. <laughs> and I said, well, Van, let me be the judge of that. Okay, if I, you know, am, am the narcotic that puts my listeners to sleep, so be it. But I think that this is an important story. And I said, uh, you know, it, was it Glenn Beck? Was it that you signed a, 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 a petition calling for a, a new investigation of 9-11? I said, neither one of those strikes me as, uh, you know, a, a minor uh, issue and people deserve to know your side of the story. And he acted as if he, he'd given 400 interviews about it and that uh, it would just be repetitious. Well, he has been silent since he left the White House and has, to my knowledge, given no interviews that disclosed his side of that story. And now he's telling me that it's, it's old news and nobody wants to hear about it. So I'm going to have to wrestle him. And and see if I can get him. I'll, I'll say, Van, I'll talk about your future stuff, but you've got to indulge me and talk a little bit about the past because uh, I said, you know, the issues you championed are stalled. And uh, Obama is approving nuclear power plants and uh, repeal of offshore drilling bans. I said, these are significant and you're not there. You were one of the few progressives uh, appointed to the Obama White House. And people like me were counting on you to be a voice in that. Mm-hmm. And he did seem to respond a little on the issues, but he seems very wary of talking about his own uh, uh, episode of why he was ejected and thrown under the bus. Well, you know, and by the way, he did a, a terrific interview with uh, 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 Dave Robertson of uh, Grist recently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that is worth reading, and I believe we'll actually be covering it in uh, this week's Green News report. Okay. Um, but... He has his only public comment, as far as I know, about the entire affair was when he accepted the NAACP award uh, a couple of weeks back. And he said, and it was a great quote, and we did play it on the Green News Report, uh, to my brother Glenn Beck, I love you, brother. I heard I that. You. Yeah, I heard and, that. <laughs> in truth, while I was surprised by the comment, it's not a bad idea to uh, keep folks like you uh, away from uh, discussing this, because I'm not sure what there is for him, at least, in going back and rehashing these charges when he is looking to the future. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to hold him accountable and hold his feet to the fire on these issues and you know get him to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's not. It, it does make some sense to me. To say, look, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna wrestle with pigs, because you know we just all get dirty and the pigs enjoy it, and so I'm not gonna even uh, talk about that nonsense. So I, I can understand that, mm-hmm. and I can understand you uh, trying to get a different response from him anyway, and seeing what you can learn about that because it's extraordinary what happened to him. Yeah, it really is. It and, really is. And, and I, I think that people need to see this 
both as, uh, you know, how Obama handles uh, crises or challenges uh, mm-hmm. such as what happened to Van Jones and the way the most progressive people, let's just take Liz Cheney's uh, Al-Qaeda 8 mm-hmm. at, at the uh, Justice Department. I mean, these are smear tactics. These are McCarthy tactics. And we can't just turn the other cheek and say, well, it's inconvenient politically for Van Jones to talk about this because uh, there are bigger issues at stake than, uh, you know, whether he's comfortable uh, delving into the stuff that that happened, you know, way back nine months ago. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is an ancient history from, uh, you know, when he graduated from high school or when he was a young socialist or something like that. These are matters that are pivotal to the future of the Obama administration. Well, you're right. And, you know, perhaps uh, if, you, if you make that uh, clear, because, you know, it's not so much about talking about the charges themselves, you know, that, that are ridiculous charges that Glenn Beck, you know, made, pulled out of his rear end, uh, you know, from some years ago, but rather the idea of how this works and how these hit jobs work. Because the same hit job that took down Van Jones is the hit job that took down Acorn. And the issue of the fact that the media has not really reported what happened with Van Jones, what really happened with Van Jones, you know, you may recall that one of the points uh, that Glenn Beck had brought up about Van Jones was uh, oh, that he signed on to this uh, petition. Mm-hmm. Actually, what he just said is, you know, basically he, he, Van Jones thinks 9-11 is an inside job. But in fact, Van Jones signed on to the uh, petition written by family members uh, of the victims of 9-11 right. that were asking for a new investigation. And they had uh, something like 10 or 11 questions that they wanted answered in this investigation. Well, the, I think it was the week or two after this all came up, I had on the, uh, one of the lead attorneys on the 9-11 Commission, John Farmer, who had just come out with his book. Mm-hmm. Um, who, by the way, has yeah. declined 18 invitations. Well, it's not 18, it's 8. But uh, <laughs> repeatedly uh, is too busy to talk to me, and apparently they did research to figure out I'm a skeptic. Well, right. Well, and they, I don't know what they figured out, but I had him on on 9-11 itself, on the 8th anniversary of 9-11, mm-hmm. when I was guest hosting uh, Mike Malloy's show, as I recall. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, Glenn Beck says that we need to ask tough questions, no matter what the answers are, and yet he uh, railroaded Van Jones by, you know, because he had the temerity to sign on to this petition asking these questions. So I'm going to ask you, Mr. Farmer, these questions. And I went down the list, and I asked him the questions that Glenn Beck had highlighted that were so offensive. And as it turns out, and, he, you know, John Farmer gave a few songs and dances on answering those questions. But after I asked each one, I said, are you offended that I have asked you that question? He said, absolutely not. They are good questions. They deserve to be answered. Mm-hmm. We didn't see any of that kind of coverage when Van Jones was hit in this uh, Glenn Beck thing. It was just throw him under the bus. Obama threw him under the bus as quickly as possible. And nobody, as far as I know, in the New York Times and AP actually bothered to do those things, actually bothered to investigate, okay, what are the charges against Van Jones, and are they legitimate? Instead, they simply covered the politics of it. Oh, you know, Obama has asked him to leave the administration, and that's that, and score another win for the bad guys. That's the problem with our reporting. There is no 
you know, in-depth uh, analysis, coverage, investigation. It's basically just, you know, cover the politics and the substance be damned. Who cares? And Brad, as we're talking about all this, what occurs to me is that the people who run the New York Times have a 1950s, at best, 1960s mentality about the role of television. And they don't get it. They don't, uh, it's like, you know, cable TV is, is a porn channel that their readers aren't watching, therefore they don't have to cover it. And there's a lot that goes on, and this is just one example, the whole O'Keefe imbroglio, that uh, the New York Times doesn't initially acknowledge, doesn't uh, really investigate or report on thoroughly, because they really don't understand how influential television is and how much it is unlike the news gathering that they attempt to do at the New York Times, this story notwithstanding, uh, it, it, you know, because TV takes so many shortcuts yeah. and favors pictures over facts and favors images over, you know, deep reporting. Uh, and they seem to be surprised on a routine basis that news breaks on television uh, and, and the Times is, is not there to cover it. Well, they're, they're only surprised when it breaks, uh, when it's something of concern, frankly, to right-wingers that breaks on television. If it's a, a non-right-winger, well, they, they still don't care. They don't pay attention to it at all. And I mention that because of the irony here of Clark Hoyt, again, the public editor, having come out last September with an article in which he chided. He was very quick to chide the New York Times, for not reporting uh, quickly enough because uh, the, the paper had waited, quote, nearly a week before reporting on these videos. And, of course, they should have you know, waited longer, apparently, to find out if they were actually legitimate. You know, so he, they were in trouble for waiting a week uh, to report on these phony videos. And in that column, he said, you know, mea culpa, our paper uh, doesn't have uh, enough folks following issues of importance to right-wingers. And they actually assigned an editor to improve what they described as a, an untuned inness to issues of interest to Fox News and talk radio. So they acknowledged they were not getting what was going on on Fox News and on talk radio, uh, obviously both right-wing outlets. Uh, but other than that, you know, when it comes to these other issues that also make their way onto uh, cable news, you're right. They're completely out to lunch. They may have been out to lunch about what's going on in Fox News and talk radio, uh, but to assign somebody, a specific editor, to look after those matters and completely ignore these others, uh, I can't help but note that irony. You just expanded my vocabulary in a way I'm not totally comfortable with. Untuned inness? Blame the New York blame Clark Hoyt. That is the exact words they used. Untuned in this. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, one more thing on this. I understand you got covered on this matter by a Russian television channel, but uh, there's been almost zip zero Z interest from the American media. Uh, let's see. Almost zip zero, not a. That would be an overstatement. Yeah. I, there has been none. No interest, uh, not even from, you know, NBC, Rachel Maddow, where are they? Uh, but yes, Russian TV was quite interested in this story. <coughs> Excuse me. They covered, uh, I, I was on it, and the day before, I was on to discuss this uh, ACORN hoax and the New York Times correction. 
Uh, they had uh, Tom Hartman on to talk about it. They had David Swanson on to talk about it. They were covering it seriously. Uh, the U.S. media, mm, not so much. I guess it's not all that important a story to uh, citizens in this country, apparently. You'd think that the balloon boy desk would be able to assign somebody <laughs> you <would think. laughs> to break them loose. Now, Brad, before we wrap up here, uh, take us to Clay County, Kentucky, where a jury returned a guilty verdict against eight defendants recently. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was, let's call it a happy ending for a change. Uh, it's a story that I know that uh, you and I have been talking about for the past year. Uh, since uh, this cabal of conspirators was uh, arrested in Clay County, Kentucky. Uh, you're right, there was eight of them. Six of them were high-ranking election officials. And apparently they had been, uh, well, they've been found by a federal uh, jury to now to be guilty of having uh, bought and sold and manipulated elections in 2002, in 2004, in 2006, and during the course of the uh, trial, it came out that uh, they had basically been doing this for decades in Clay County, Kentucky. Now, what's most, well, there's a couple of very notable points here. One being the fact that uh, these were high-ranking election officials, including the county clerk, the circuit court judge, mm. and the uh, school superintendent. Now, you and I have talked for years about the fact that it's, you know, it's not these uh, voters, it's not voter fraud, it's not ACORN who you have to worry about. The real concern is election insiders. Uh, they are the ones who are, are most able to manipulate uh, elections and election results, and that's exactly what they did here. They made millions in the process. Uh, but two points, two other points uh, of note here, really. Uh, one, during the trial, uh, one of the uh, witnesses talked about the fact that she had been a Republican and had been uh, asked to change her uh, party affiliation to Democratic so she could serve as a Democratic poll judge. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. We looked at that after 2004. We had uh, whistleblowers coming forward and saying, hey, look, you know, in Ohio, they love to say that all of these election uh, commissions, these county election commissions are bipartisan with, you know, headed by one Democrat and one Republican. And it turns out, uh, you know, the record shows that a lot of these so-called Democrats had never voted in a Democratic primary in their life until just before they were named to these election commissions. We see a real-life example of this going on down there in Clay County, where you had essentially two Republicans serving as judges, one under the Republican banner, one under the Democratic banner, and doing any damn thing they wanted. Amongst the damn things they wanted to do was to change votes on electronic voting machines. And that's exactly what they did in 2006, on the ESNS iVotronic touchscreen voting machines, uh, they would actually go in after the voter had left the booth and change their votes. For years, the voting machine companies have been saying, well, you know, once we got them to admit that, yes, their machines were easily hacked and their systems, their tabulators were easily hacked, uh, they finally admitted that, but then they said, well, Maybe you can hack them, but nobody ever has. <laughs> a 
highly dubious claim to begin with. Trust me, uh, trust me. Exactly. Well, and the reason they were able to say that is because they have been claiming that these are proprietary trade secrets. You can't look at these machines. You can't investigate them. The citizens cannot, God forbid, oversee their own elections. Don't look at our machines. And they were able to get you know judges in courts to agree with them and to keep the source code and the, the data uh, databases and so forth out of the hands of the public so we couldn't look at them. Uh, so they were able to make that charge. They can make that charge no more because we now have this uh, uh, federal uh, uh, guilty verdict of these high-ranking election officials who were, in fact, going in and changing votes on electronic voting machines, the same type, the same model, the ESNS iVotronic, that is used in 18 different states still to this day, and, of course, the rest of the states, almost all of them, uh, also use similar touchscreen uh, devices where you can uh, pull off similar chicanery. So it's a big story. It's a big victory that, of course, was splashed all over the national front pages. Uh, well, at least Brad Blog's front page and, uh, <laughs> and a local Kentucky paper. And today you issued a warning to Rand Paul. That's not Ron Paul, who many people know ran for president, the congressman from Texas. But his son, Rand, R-A-N-D, is uh, polling pretty well in a, in a uh, primary race for the Senate seat in uh, Kentucky. And who is his opponent but the guy who is the state official in charge of elections? Secretary of State Trey Grayson. What's the the uh, gist of your warning to Rand Paul? Well, yeah, uh, Grayson is going to be overseeing his own election in Kentucky with their very rich history of uh, election fraud, as highlighted by the Clay County case. Mm -hmm. uh, he's going to be overseeing his own election on these uh, electronic uh, voting machines. Most of the county, uh, most of the state, I'm sorry, uses uh, touchscreen voting machines, which are therefore 100% unverifiable. And uh, Trey Grayson himself, uh, two years ago, as we covered on the Brad blog, was found to have lied about the certification of some of those voting machines. Uh, even Diebold themselves notified the state that, hey, you're using uncertified uh, voting machines in, uh, in Jefferson County. And at the time, the Attorney General, the Republican Attorney General, had called out Grayson for this. Grayson essentially lied about it, said, oh, no, that's not true. It didn't happen. These aren't the droids you're looking for. And uh, they just went merrily along their way. And this was a Republican calling out the Republican Secretary of State. This guy is now, you know, the guy who was called out, the guy who lied about the certification, the guy who is the chief election official in this state where we have this rich history of voter fraud, where, I'm sorry, of election fraud, where six high-ranking election officials have just been found guilty uh, in federal felonies of fixing elections for decades. He will be overseeing his own race against Rand Paul in the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate on May 18th, and I have warned uh, the Paul folks, hey, now is a good time to get to court to start filing some papers and start ensuring that uh, the, uh, the memory cards, the electronic memory cards, and uh, the paper ballots, such as they will exist in, in, in some of those counties, are retained, are uh, you know, kept securely after the election for the full 22 months that they are required to do so by federal law. This is almost never done. Check that. This is never done. 
but the fact is those memory cards contain important data that ought to be available just like ballots ought to be available uh, for 22 months after an election. And if Paul wants to avoid getting screwed here, it would be wise to put out the word in advance that uh, he's not going to take any of this sitting down. Rand Paul needs to get to court and uh, get a commitment from his opponent, Trey Grayson, uh, that he is uh, you know, going to retain these materials should there be, in the event that there's any question about the results of this election. Well, Scott, the only thing missing here is to, uh, you know, have Grayson uh, tell us uh, that, uh, is, is that his name? Yeah, Grayson, uh, that he has retained uh, J. Kenneth Blackwell as an independent observer to monitor this election. You know, he, he's in the neighboring state of Ohio, just to the north. I'm, I'm sure he's available now. Well, he might as well be, because this, I promise you, will be, uh, oh, about a 80, 85, 90 percent faith-based election down there in Kentucky, since they'll be using uh, touchscreens, which are 100% unverifiable in any way, shape, or form. So once again, it's going to be up to uh, Diebold voting machines uh, to let the country know who won and who lost the race. And I put both won and lost in quotation marks there. Brad Friedman, bradblog.com. There's more to read at the blog, and I hope you'll drop by and check it out. Brad, as always, I really appreciate what you do. Thanks for joining me today. The pleasure is always mine. Thank you, sir. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for the listeners of this program. Get this. Don Siegelman is still fighting for justice. And Laura Canary still has her job as a U.S. attorney in Alabama. President Obama, what is wrong with this picture? This ain't no technological breakdown. This is the road to hell. Don Siegelman's been trapped on the road to hell. And he's been trying real hard to get off. If you're a new listener to this program or to this saga, Don Siegelman, one of the most successful Democratic politicians in Alabama, ran statewide many times and was victorious. And then an election was stolen from him. And then he was indicted. And he confronted corrupt prosecutors, a corrupt judge, and a corrupt system. And he's been fighting for justice. As you may know, he was uh, behind bars because of the uh, conviction that Carl Rose cronies won against him on their second attempt, by the way. And Judge Mark Fuller is still on the bench. Laura Canary, who I mentioned over the music, is married to Bill Canary, a business partner of Carl Rove's, and she remains on the job as U.S. attorney in one of the districts in Alabama. And while Governor Siegelman is free, he doesn't have complete freedom because uh, his appeals have so far not been successful, and his appeals for justice from Eric Holder, the attorney general, so far have apparently fallen on deaf ears. Governor Siegelman returns to our program today. How are you, sir? Oh, Peter, I'm... I'm I am uh, 
still fired up. I'm uh, I'm blessed, but I'm still angry, and I'm 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 angry not not just because of what Karl Rove and, and and this government did to me, but to anybody in America. You know, if you keep in mind, if one keeps in mind that that I was I was arrested and convicted and for trying to to raise money so that our our kids in Alabama could get a free college education. They did not accuse me of taking a single penny for myself. Mm-hmm. They said that I swapped a campaign contribution uh which was going to be used for the Alabama Education Lottery Foundation for a a place on a a a a seat on a board that this guy had been on through three previous governors. There was no evidence. Even the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said that there was no evidence of an express quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they fabricated evidence by by bribing a felon to come into court and and to give false testimony. Time Magazine exposed uh, how I was selectively prosecuted by uh, Jeff Sessions, who's a, a, he was a former uh, U.S. attorney and now, now uh, U.S. senator. Uh, yes, he, representing the Neanderthal wing of some political uh, party. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. He was a guy who said he thought the Ku Klux Klan was a pretty good group of guys until he learned that they smoked pot. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a guy that, as U.S. attorney, rounded up uh, a bunch of Alabama's uh, uh, black political activists, had them put on a bus, taken by the FBI and the state troopers to Mobile, Alabama, where they were fingerprinted, photographed, and made to give handwriting samples as a way to to uh, put fear into the black community that if they went out and tried to register voters, or encourage people to vote an absentee ballot, that they would be arrested and put in jail. Uh, he worked hand-in-glove with Karl Rove uh, in my first political battle with Rove, which was in 1994. I want to I take people back. Everybody knows that Karl Rove came into power with the president in 2000. And most people are familiar with his, his, uh, his political abuses. They know that he, he was part and parcel of the group that persuaded... George W. Bush to go into Iraq under false pretenses, and my guess is because he wanted to win midterm elections. Mm-hmm. People know that Karl Rove was involved in the stealing of elections. People know that Karl Rove was involved in the, uh, the firing of Republican U.S. attorneys who wouldn't, wouldn't prosecute Democrats. That's yeah. been proven Indeed. by the House Judiciary Committee. And we have sworn testimony by a Republican lawyer sworn testimony to the House Judiciary Committee that Karl Rove was involved in getting the, uh, the Justice Department to prosecute me. As a Republican state attorney general said, they couldn't beat Sigelman fair and square, so they targeted him with this prosecution. Mm-hmm. That was said by Grant Woods, the former state Republican attorney general from Arizona, on CBS's 60 Minutes, when they exposed the fact that I was I was convicted with the sole testimony of a felon 
who was who swapped his testimony for a light sentence. Well, for well, and and they no made sentence. they made him rehearse his uh, narrative what sixty five times until he yeah seventy times. They made him write and rewrite his testimony over seventy times. And I guess my point is, yeah, I'm angry. Yes, this has been going on a long time. It is it's 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 taken me away from what I love to do, which was to help people and work in politics. And you know, I was I was. Thinking of anyway, you know, my political career I think would have taken me into the Democratic primaries in 2004, the presidential primaries. But what what hurts me most is that that I was not able to fulfill what I wanted to do, which was to give every every col- every kid in Alabama that finished high school a chance to go to college for free. And uh, uh, you know, it, it. But if if they can put Don Sigelman, a former governor, a governor. Yeah, you know, at the time, if mm-hmm. they can, they, if they can begin an investigation on a governor, and put a governor in prison for something that's never been considered a crime before, and don't ask me, ask ask the ninety-one former state attorneys general who have all petitioned the United States Supreme Court, saying basically, if what I did is a crime, then you might as well get ready to lock up Bush and Obama and every other governor in the country because they all appoint contributors to positions too. Yeah. Um, but if they can if they can do this to to me, they can Peter, they can do it to you or your family and um, you know with little fanfare. Well, and and governor one of the things uh, just to uh, augment a little bit the history of Karl Rove, um, after he was kicked off the Poppy Bush uh, campaign back in uh, 92, uh, he focused on electing pro-corporate just, justices, judges, and in in particular justices to state supreme courts. Well, and he, Alab- he set up shop in Alabama. Yes, from, Alabama from- was that, and Texas were the two prime territories where he was working to pack the courts with pro-corporate judges. This came after the Master Tobacco Settlement and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and other pro-corporate groups. Uh, made a very serious long-term plan to change the character and the composition of state Supreme Courts uh, in order to have their way. And uh, they had their way with you. That's one of the byproducts of Rove's efforts in the 90s. Yeah, he, after he, uh, after, as you said, after he was kicked out of the, uh, the Bush seniors campaign in 92, he and his partner, business and political partner, Bill Canary, came to Alabama uh, they set up shop here. Rove had his contacts in Texas, and Bill Canary and and Carl Rove married two girls from Alabama. Rove married a girl from Mobile, and and Bill Canary married a girl from Montgomery, uh, the U.S. attorney who, who turned out to be the U.S. attorney who prosecuted me. And they set up their political shop here in 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 Alabama, and. Uh, we did battle with Roe from 94 when he tried to steal his first election here for the state Supreme Court. Uh, and, you know, up to and including uh, 2002 uh, when I ran for re-election. And it, it, you, you started out the show by saying that my election was stolen, and I, I just wanted to digress for a moment and go back to that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I had done battle with Rove in 94, 96, 98, 2000 and and then in 2002, uh, as I was running for for re-election, they uh, kicked into high gear this federal investigation. Bill Canary's wife, Carl Rose's partner, business and political partner's wife, uh, started this investigation. The the 
the night of the election, I won the election, mm-hmm. uh, went to bed comfortable and happy that I was going to be able to continue to fight for Alabama school kids. And I woke up the next morning and the election had been stolen. Uh, some votes had been shifted uh, overnight in one Republican, all Republican, South Alabama County. And, and, and Governor, if I may, uh, in the segment preceding you, we talked with Brad Friedman, who is the election protection blogger at bradblog.com, and he was commenting on the recent conviction of eight individuals, including the top election officials in Clay County, Kentucky. And they were doing what happened to you. They were going in and they switched votes in the voting booth, and then they manipulated the tabulations on the central Diebold computers that were used to uh, count and tabulate all the votes. And so we we have real-life examples. This is not some fictional uh, dream or a hypothesis. Elections have been stolen at virtually every level. And the ones that floated to national notice were, of course, the presidential races in 2000 and 2004. But we know from the way Max Cleland uh, lost his election in Georgia. Uh, We know your case. We now know Kentucky. There is a broad pattern of election fraud conducted by insiders. And so far, we have not found a single Democrat who is at the center of any one of these uh, election fraud cases. It is pervasive among Republicans. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is, if you look at Karl Rove's history and what he, what he did when he was growing up uh, in politics, this is, this is nothing but an extension of, 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 of what he was doing within the young Republicans and, and in his earlier career, Working for Don Segretti in the in the Nixon White House, doing the dirty tricks, mm-hmm. uh, he perfected those those techniques, uh, beginning in 2000 uh, when he was when he first went into the White House. And you know, they in the Nixon White House they had an outside group doing the investigations and setting people up. Rove learned that if he just appointed the right people to the right positions, such as U.S. attorneys. Then he could use the FBI, he could use U.S. prosecutors to do the dirty work that before they had to hire people to do. So, uh, you know, and, and now he, they have perfected this, this way of stealing votes as well. And what they did in my case was simply to electronically transfer some 5,000 votes from my column to my Repo- Republican uh, po- opponent's column. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, let me say that my Republican opponent's campaign was being managed by the husband of my prosecutor. Yeah. Um, the um, and the two people who took credit for that were one Carl Rove's partner, a woman named Kitty McCullough, who later changed her name to Kelly Kimbrough. But Kitty McCullough uh, was given credit for stealing the election. And then a guy named Dan Gans, who uh, immediately thereafter went to work for Jack Abramoff, Tom DeLay-related uh, lobbying group called the Alexandria Strategy Group. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be noted that, uh, that in that election, uh, it has been proven, not by Democrats, but by Senator John McCain, the Republican, that some uh, several million dollars were transferred from... Uh, was transferred from Abramoff through the Christian Coalition, uh, Ralph Reed, into uh, the the Alabama uh, 
you know, political campaign to defeat me in 2002. There are all kinds of uh, you know sinister characters that were involved in in uh, helping to do me in. My my problem with all this is that I'm 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 blessed, Peter. I'm blessed because you're my friend and you've been helping to spotlight this. Uh, and CBS and, and Time Magazine and the New York Times have written about it constantly. But what is disturbing is that the Obama administration, God bless them, I know they're hard at work, but, you know, he says that that, that he, he, he wants to get it right going forward, that he doesn't want to look back. Well, by gosh, there's some things that we've got to look back at because anybody knows you can't build a strong house on a weak foundation. If we allow this country to continue to go forward while allowing, while shoving all this stuff under the, uh, the White House rug, it is going to come back to haunt our democracy. There is no way that, w- that this country can parade around in the international political sphere saying, look at us, you need to copy our democracy, Iraq, when we allow... Uh, torture to be used as a, as a way of interrogation, mm-hmm. when we allow elections to be stolen without doing anything about it, when we allow felons to be bribed to give false evidence, and let's forget about Don Sigelman's felon who lied to put me in prison. Let's go, let's go to a more recent example where two black men were put in prison for 25 years in Iowa uh, and who were exonerated. But when they when they sued the prosecutors for false imprisonment, the United States government went to the U.S. Supreme Court and said that that the United U.S. citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. This is Obama's lawyers, for goodness' sakes. Yeah. How in the world are we getting it right moving forward, Mr. President? When we allow, when somebody allows lawyers on your behalf to go into the U.S. Supreme Court and argue that United States citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. These are not my words. These are David Savage's words from the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. In a story written January the 5th, 2010. Well, Governor, I, I share your concern because, uh, for example, one of the things you didn't reference is that the illegal wiretapping that George Bush authorized and got the phone companies to collude on uh, remains in place. And the Obama administration has not only embraced the bad legal precedents set by uh, the Bush team, but has expanded on them to prevent any litigation that would expose uh, the depth and the nature of the wiretapping and interception of emails. And so they've created a kind of uh, a catch-22 situation where, well, you try to sue, they say, well, we immunize the phone companies. You say, well, uh, we know we were wiretapped. They say, well, you can't prove it. And when you attempt to prove it, like in the Al-Haramain case that we've covered on this program, they say you can't because it would expose state secrets. Yeah, it's catch-22. And, catch and yeah, so they, they've created this, this circular kind of legal uh, defense that is a real insult to our constitutional rights. And I believe, as I have told you on previous occasions, Governor, that if your case is fully investigated and exposed, not only would you be free of any future uh, liabilities, but we would see the dimensions of stolen elections, 
of tainted prosecutors, of judges who have interests in corporations that they don't disclose. And I'm referring explicitly to Mark Fuller, who should have recused himself from your case, should recuse himself from a a retrial or uh, any of, of the appeals that might come before him. And yet he remains on the bench. And this whole sorry story is something that Eric Holder uh, appears to turn a blind eye to, and his underlings have advocated for stiffer sentences for you. And uh, I find this uh, beyond Kafkaesque. It is it is really frightening that we would double down on the cronyism and the uh, the the injustices that were visited upon you and lock those in and build upon them. I mean, it's, it's really uh, very dangerous. Well, it, it is. I think the, the other thing that's dangerous is the covert assassinations that we're engaged in. Um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a screaming parallel between the covert assassinations and people who blow themselves up uh, in an attempt to... Uh, harm government officials and, and, and police. And, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, one is a very sophisticated means of, 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 of assassination, and the other is, is very crude and, and, uh, and brutal. But, you know, it, until we get it right here at home, it's, it's going to be hard for us to, to argue that others should emulate our, our behavior. Mm-hmm. And now, now, Governor, it, it is very distressing, not just uh, for my situation, but I, I hope and pray that this administration will now begin to look at some of these other wrongs and, and try, to, try to get those things right going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, Governor, I wanted to ask you to explain a little bit, because uh, since the last time I talked to you, I took the opportunity to read the uh, decision of the Atlanta Appeals Court which uh, did uh, uphold some of uh, the convictions against you and also did uh, uh, rule against some of those charges. But one that I was curious about is this motorcycle deal. While you were in office, uh, somebody gave you a motorcycle. No, 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 no. All right, well, well let me, no, let me no, tell let you. Me, let me, well, let me, well, let me okay, correct you. Uh, well, I will, but I, I just want to oh, okay. lay out what I read was okay. that, let's say, you took possession of a motorcycle and then it appears that an effort was made to cover over uh, what appeared to be a gift, and uh, there were some checks written. And at any rate, the court concluded uh, that you had not been forthcoming when you were confronted on those issues. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell the story, how it happened, and then how perhaps it was twisted uh, in this prosecution. Well, it's a very simple story. I, I, as governor, uh, I pursued not only education for our kids, but jobs for our people. And I brought in five different automobile plants in three and a half years, Honda, Toyota, Mercedes, Hyundai, and a second Honda plant. Um, after I had landed the Toyota uh, plant, I, well, I visited, I visited Stuttgart to get uh, Mercedes, and I visited uh, Tokyo to, to bring in Honda and, and uh, Toyota. But... Mm-hmm. Um, after I landed the Honda plant uh, and visiting upon visiting the uh, CEO over at, uh, in, in Japan, they wanted to give me a motorcycle. And I said, no, 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 I, can't, I cannot take a motorcycle. Um, so anyway, I, I bought a motorcycle. 
mm-hmm. uh, and I paid. You know, that was not that was not in dispute. So it was not a gift. They offered it. They offered it to me free, but I paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at some point uh, later, the uh, my staff member uh, came to me and said, "Look, you're, I know your wife is upset because uh, you you bought this motorcycle, and you know why don't you let me buy it from you?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "No, no, no. I don't want to. I don't want to sell the motorcycle. I just got it. I know my wife's upset because I spent twelve thousand, thirteen thousand dollars on a motorcycle." He said, "Well, look. Let me let me buy half of it. Let me buy a part interest in it, and when you get tired of it, you can just sell it to me." So I thought about it, and I said, "Okay, that sounds like a, a reasonable thing. It'll it'll take half the sting out of it, you know, if 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 he buys half of the motorcycle." Well, unbeknownst to me, he he went to a lobbyist and got the money from a lobbyist, and uh, then wrote me a check with the money with money that essentially came from this lobbyist. So they, the, the, the prosecution argued that this was something that was known to me and was therefore just a, a, a gift from the, from the lobbyist. Uh, but I've laid out the facts for you, and people can, can draw their own conclusions from what I just said. But uh, the truth was is that they offered to give it to me, and I bought it with my own money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the way it was painted by the prosecutor and reviewed by the court, um, they they changed those sequences and it made it seem like uh, your staff member, and I don't recall his name now, uh, was uh, you know writing these checks to cover uh, for uh, some sort of uh, unreported transaction. Yeah, no, that that was that was just that was not the case. It was a they offered it to me as a gift. We had, in fact, the government put on a witness from Honda, who under cross-examination said, hey, you know, we wanted to give this guy the motorcycle, but he refused to take the gift. Very interesting. Now, what are the recent developments in terms of your effort to uh, get a new trial uh, to clear your name, Governor? Well, we've got two things going. Uh, One, we do have a motion for a new trial pending before uh, Judge Fuller, in Montgomery, there's very little chance that he will will approve that uh, that you know or grant that motion for a new trial. So we also have an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court on the uh, on the conviction itself as well as the sentence. But um, and we have 91 former Republican and Democratic attorneys generals attorneys general who have mm-hmm. uh, joined with us uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court arguing that. You know what I did was not a crime, so we're you know I'm 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 hopeful that eventually, and I say eventually, which probably in legal terms and means about two years, uh, I'm hopeful that eventually legally this will be cleared up. Um, but you know there was one thing that you mentioned while the music was going at the start of the show, and that is that the Carl Rose's best friend's wife who was the U.S. attorney who prosecuted me mm-hmm. while her husband was running my opponent's campaign, is still today the U.S. attorney in Alabama. The, the objections to replace her came from, and Jeff has been Sessions. coming from, the two Republican <laughs> U.S. senators. Yeah. Well, why in the world would President Obama give one rip why, what the Republicans think about 
who he wants to appoint as the U.S. attorney. It makes no sense. Well, and, and Governor, the uh, president had the opportunity. He just made 15 recess appointments. And these are individuals who have been appointed, but the Senate has not taken up their confirmation. So under the Constitution, he is permitted, when the Senate is in recess, to appoint these people, and they would serve until the end of the next session of the Senate. And he could have replaced Laura Canary in that manner, uh, at least on a temporary basis. And they, they also have the opportunity to demand the resignation and put in a substitute, a, a placeholder, until uh, a formal nomination is confirmed by the Senate. And the Obama administration has not used any of those options to try to clean up that swamp in Alabama. Well, it's, it's, and it's not just in Alabama. It's, it's in other places across the country. But yeah. it, 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 is, uh, it is politically... You know, either either someone is afraid of what will be exposed because we we know that this prosecution leads to Karl Rove. Does it lead to President Bush? Does it lead to others? Uh, you know, my guess is yes, it leads to others. Um, and I think there is a there is a reluctance to to start digging in that sandbox because they are not afraid. I mean, they're afraid of what may come out of that. Um, and, you know, it, it is, um, I mean, that's just what I, that's what I believe. I mm-hmm. think there's, there's a, a reluctance to, to put somebody in who's going to really dig for the truth. And, um, you know, it, it, is, it is disheartening. It's discouraging. Uh, but, you know, we have to keep fighting. And, and where uh, would you like my listeners to point their activism? To Attorney General Holder? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I don't think I don't think it would do any good, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've I've I think that the place that we need to direct our attention is to the one spot and to the one person who has been active, who has been telling the truth, who has been digging for the truth, and that's Congressman John Conyers, the mm-hmm. the only man, the only chairman of any 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 committee in the House or Senate who has stood up to Karl Rove and stood up to three attorneys general. He, he has sent a, a blistering letter, not only to Eric Holder and Gonzalez, but, um, but to McCasey as well, two under Bush and one under Obama, saying, you know, investigate this stuff. You know, it has been over two years since CBS exposed the fact that, that a felon was bribed to give false testimony to convict me, and the Obama administration, nor the Bush administration, but the Obama administration, has not even sent anybody down to investigate. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage people to write, call, or fax, email Congressman John Conyers and other members of the House Judiciary Committee, and and ask that they hold uh, hearings on government misconduct that leads to wrongful imprisonment. Uh, and it's not just about me, although I think John Conyers would probably put me, as he's done before, at the top of the list. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and the American trial lawyers have called me America's number one political prisoner. But, you know, I, I don't see us much making much headway with the Department of Justice at this point. I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I don't know what the reasoning is unless they're just, frankly, afraid of what they might find. Yeah. 
Well, Governor, um, I haven't bought Carl Rove's book because I don't want to encourage him. Um, but what do you know about what he said in his new book about your case? Well, he continues to make these these denials, but the, the, but he he does not go far enough um, to to say that you know he, he makes you know he makes claims for one that simply are not true for which we have sworn testimony that uh, you know we. You know, he swears, or he says, he doesn't swear that he mm-hmm. wasn't involved, but we have sworn testimony that he was. He says that he doesn't know or doesn't remember certain people that belie. Uh, he says he he doesn't remember a guy named uh, Matt McDonald. Well, Matt McDonald paid his, wrote his paycheck from for a couple of years. Remember this guy's name? He says he barely had contact with uh, with. Bill Canary, and you know he was a business partner, and and uh, they were they were together at you know hundreds of times over the last thirty five years. It's it's uh, he just is not telling the truth. I, I think this guy is a, is really a pathological liar. Uh, he, he perhaps doesn't even know that he's lying when he lies, but uh, I believe he does. Well, Governor, it's great to talk with you again. You seem to be keeping your spirits up, and if people would like to support you, you've got a website at Don Siegelman, S-I-E-G-E-L-M-A-N, DonSiegelman.com. And uh, if anybody's in a position to help him with the burden of these legal fees, uh, I know that he uh, would certainly welcome your contributions. Governor, we'll stay in touch, and uh, someday you're going to get justice. Well, thank you. I I want the country to get justice, and I uh, I want our democracy to be restored. Don Siegelman, former governor of Alabama. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails